First John chapter 1, starting at verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life. For the life was manifested, and we have seen it, and bear witness, and show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you, that ye also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things write we unto you, that your joy may be full. So far, let us pray. Father in heaven, we come before you and we thank you that you unite a people into one so that we may be united into uh, fellowship with you. And I just pray as we reflect upon that this morning that you would increase our prayer life, increase the, the joy of our souls and the fellowship that we have with one another. In Jesus' name, amen. And so this morning, as I uh, was thinking about the Christmas season, and I want to reflect a little bit on that phrase uh, um, at the end of verse 3, when it says, And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Because John here brings the, uh, the incarnation of Christ, the enfleshing is what incarnation means, the becoming flesh. And he draws it together with the idea of fellowship, prayer. And that's what I want to look at this morning. So really the theme would be how the incarnation of Christ reflects fellowship. And so I have six points this morning, breaking code and going to six. And they are these, incarnation and relationship, incarnation and reconciliation, incarnation and sanctification, incarnation and intercession, incarnation and kingdom, and lastly, incarnation and trinity. So those six points. So first of all, incarnation and relationship. When the message of the Christ child came, we get this verse from Matthew 123 where it says, Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. And when we take that concept that God comes to be with people and we go all the way back to the beginning, the beginning of creation, we learn there that in the Garden of Eden, man was created after the image of God. But what, what, what else do we know about what was there before the fall? It was the idea of, of fellowship, fellowship with God. Adam and Eve walked in communion with him. And it was not until sin that that fellowship was broken and sin then estranges, it breaks people from fellowship with God. We were made then, take this in, we were made to have fellowship with God. And to seek our happiness anywhere outside of fellowship with him is not going to be fulfilling and it is actually a, a breaking of what we were made to do. Do you long to be happy? Do you have a gnawing and an aching in your soul? The great mathematician who was also a theologian, Blaise Pascal, you maybe remember Pascal from math or Pascal's wager, but he also was a very strong Christian. 
in France, and he wrote this. He says, what else does this craving and this helplessness proclaim but that there was once in man a true happiness of which all that now remains is the empty print and trace. This he, that is man, tries in vain to fill with everything around him, seeking in things that are not there the help that he cannot find in those that are. Though none can help, since this infinite abyss, he calls it, can be filled only with an infinite and an immutable object. And then he says, in other words, with God himself. So what we see at Christmas is that the void that man has because of broken relationship will be reestablished, quickened, made alive in Jesus Christ. God sought us out when we didn't seek him. And that's what we see in the garden, right? Adam, where art thou? And that unleashes a real explanation of the heart of God in seeking broken, estranged mankind. Adam and Eve ran. We would run. And God pursues man. What a mercy. What is mercy? It says in Isaiah 65, 1, I am sought of them that ask not for me. I am found of them that sought not after me. Christ came then to bring us back to God. And therefore, when you struggle with prayer, and when you wonder if God really hears you, remember that it was God who stepped into our broken, rebellious world so that we can seek him, so that we can have Prayer, prayer of fellowship. I'm not talking here about the duty of prayer. I'm talking about the communion of prayer, that which we were made to have, fellowship with him. And he wants us to be satisfied in him. He wants us to chase after him and to hunger for him and to long after him in fellowship that we can actually say sweet hour of prayer, sweet hour of prayer. Is this your prayer life? Is this what you long for? Oh, prayer is the deepest longings of the soul which reaches out to God who first reached down and stooped. It is the beggar reaching upward because the great benefactor has stooped first and given the life-giving bread to us. Oh, prayer is a wonderful gift and it is all centered and made possible through the coming of Jesus Christ. Now you might be asking here, well, wasn't there prayer before Jesus came? Absolutely there was, for sure. Abraham prayed, David prayed, people have called upon the name of the Lord, but all of this is quickened and made possible as the Father views all prayers through his Son. And so even the prayers before were ultimately made possible because the Son was slain from the foundation of the world we see in Scripture. And that leads me to the second point, incarnation and reconciliation. Have you ever had an argument with somebody and then afterwards it's kind of hard to talk to them? I think we all know what that feels like. Maybe you offended, offended them and you feel a level of distance and you kind of avoid one another. You don't make eye contact anymore. And we all know that. Experience, But we also know through personal experience 
the distance that happens and that exists between God and sinners, don't we? Because our conscience makes clear that there is a separation, that sin makes, brings shame. Sin brings deflection. And fellowship is not, with God is not possible when things are not right. The Bible says of the wicked who are very religious... In Isaiah 1.15, he says, And when ye spread forth your hands, God says, I will hide mine eyes from you. Yea, when ye make many prayers, I will not hear you. Your hands are full of blood. So how can that distance be made up and that, recon- that relationship restored again in Christ, in Christ's coming to reconcile sinners to himself and you that were sometimes alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight you remember in acts one of the titles that we get of Jesus Christ is the holy and the just the holy and the just you see if Jesus had power and glory, not in the humility we were just singing of, we would be destroyed. We would be annihilated. We'd cower back and call for the rocks to hide on us. And so the very coming of Jesus in humility, in the manger, shows us that Christ did not come to judge us. It's not what the first coming is about. It is not to bring condemnation, but to bring salvation. From the precious merits of Jesus Christ and his infinite worth flows all of our fellowship with the Father. You see, the leaves on a tree only turn green and the branches only bear fruit because they are connected to Jesus Christ, to the vine. Jesus says, if ye abide in me and my words abide in you, ye shall ask what ye will. There's prayer. And it shall be done unto you. Maybe you've lost sight of this precious truth in your prayer life. Perhaps you doubt whether God hears you. Perhaps you wonder whether he really is giving an ear to your prayers. You see, the death of Christ is the place where all of our sins are crucified and we stand forgiven before him. And when we have indulged in sin, when we give way to temptation and we fall on our noses again and doubts arise and we want to hide in shame and we feel like I can't pray to God anymore because there's distance. And we all know that feeling. And we ask, how can I call upon God when I have offended him again? What do we do then? We flee afresh to Calvary's cross. We look anew to Jesus once for all given sacrifice of himself we plead anew the merits of Christ and like sods that are hardened in the winter and so sin freezes us and makes us cold to the things of Christ oh it is when the precious sun beams down its warm rays of love and forgiveness and reconciliation that the sods melt and life springs up again and so look to Christ. And in the same passage that we opened up with in John, Jesus, uh, John says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful 
and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You see, for the sinner to plead the merits of Christ is to plead the justice of God. And then be assured, God is faithful to his promise to show us mercy through the impeccable merits of Jesus Christ. You see, our reflection is so often navel-gazing. We look at ourselves and we think about, oh, did I pray with enough willpower? Did I pray with enough looking at Christ? Did I pray with enough fervor? Did I, did I make sure I accounted for all my sins? That's not the way we ought to pray. No, we look to him. We look to Christ. Christ is everything for the church. Christ is the merits of our prayers. Christ is the merits of our fellowship. And there we see the warm arms of the Father stretched out in the tenderness of his Son. See that as you remember the Christmas season. And so pray, believers. Pray, Christian. Pray the merits of Christ. Believe with assurance that being found in Christ, we who were once rebels are now reconciled to God. Third point, incarnation and sanctification. The very humble and uh, gentle Pastor Robert Murray McShane, who was such a godly young man that even the aged pastors would seek his counsel and saw so much wisdom in this young man he would die at the age of 29, but he said this. One of his prayers was, Lord, make me as holy as a pardoned sinner can be. He longed for holiness. Is that your longing, to long for holiness? And when you see how much sin remains in you, it sometimes can be very discouraging. You want to be more holy. You want to hunger for God more, don't you? And maybe this past week you wrestled with some inward sins. Perhaps you were, you were discontent. You were jealous of what others get. You, you hear about where they could go or what they have. And you coveted. Perhaps that was you. Perhaps you're struggling with the heartache of loss, especially in this season where... Your heart breaks for people who were once in your life that now are gone. And you have joylessness. Perhaps it's the instability in the world. You see what's going on in, in the Middle East. You see what's going on in Ukraine. You see what's going on in North America. And the government seems to bring so much hostility. Will we still be able to meet like this in the next few years? Who knows? Who knows? And in all of this, you, you just... You look at yourself and you think, man, Lord, I am so fearful, so anxious, so easily discontented. Well, this morning we sang the great hymn, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. And remember at some point we sing, Dear Desire of Every Nation. That's a quotation from Haggai 2.7 where it says, or no, sorry, afterwards it says, quoting Haggai 2.7, it says, Joy of every longing heart. The desire of nations is him who is the joy of every longing heart. 
Do you long after Christ? Hearts that long for holiness are hearts then that must long for Jesus Christ to behold him more. They are inseparable. And so when your heart longs for joy, when your hearts long for fruit and victory over sin, we know that that longing can only be fulfilled in Jesus Christ because Christ we see in his coming is the balm to heal the stink of sin. Christ is the shepherd who says he will lead us into green pastures. And unlike the pleasures of the world which are sweet to the tongue and bitter to the stomach, Christ Jesus will satisfy permanently and fully. Do you know him, young people? Do you know him, elderly people? Do you know this Jesus? Do you pray with that Hunger satisfied in Jesus. The Apostle Paul said that I may know him. He pursued nothing else. He forsook all of his merits. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was, he says, concerning the law, blameless. He had nothing he thought could stand between himself and his God. But he knew he and himself was unrighteous. And he sought and pursued Jesus. And he says, oh, that I may know him in the fellowship of his sufferings, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. To pursue Christ is to pursue life, holiness. It is to pursue everything you were made for and nothing else. I'm not talking about a mystical experience as some of the monks may have pursued, or people who do all kinds of mantras and sit on mats and try to empty themselves. No, I'm talking about the filling of the believer with the knowledge of Christ. It is the soul, your soul, dear people, your soul that is knowing and leaning on Jesus Christ that triumphs over sin. It is that soul that will be progressively turned from one degree of holiness, of glory, to another degree of holiness, uh, glory. You know, you can, you can be listening to all of this and you, you might think, well, the entire Christian life is just a bunch of things I learned. Some of you grew up with very good catechism where you learn the question and answer. Some of you could memorize them. And you know the categories of justification, sanctification, adoption, and election, and you can spit those out in no time. But that can be only up here, can't it? Oh, but a soul that goes to God in prayer, that takes what he has learned and prays and seeks him, is a soul that is taking those things and seeing them for what they are. Christ is him who came to bring me to fellowship with the Father. It is in prayer that we repent of our sins and failures, and it is in prayer that we cling, we cling to Christ. wasn't one of the prayers that we see in the Bible. It is a prayer of simplicity. O Lord, I believe. Help thou my unbelief. It's a prayer. Sadly, many Christians think 
that they have as much of Christ as is possible. You think you kind of hit a plateau of the knowledge of Christ. Let's not come to church expecting less, less of Christ. Let's come for more of him. He is an infinite fountain. He is the headwaters of all joy, all fellowship. Did Mary only know Jesus as a babe in a manger? Did she not see him later teaching the crowds and one day lifted up as Savior? Did she not see him as risen, conquering Lord? You see, Mary saw all these different aspects of her Lord as he walked this earth. She grew in the knowledge of Jesus Christ as he manifested himself to her and to the disciples. And in prayer, we plead and we hunger for more of God. Oh Lord, give me a maturing, give me an increasing, give me a growing view of Jesus. To behold more of his glory and to be sanctified by seeing him. Robert Murray McShane again, he would say this. Oh no, sorry, not Robert Murray McShane. I will quote him later. I just want to quote here from again 2 Corinthians where it says, We are changed from one degree of glory to another as we seek him. Point number four. Incarnation and prayer. Please turn with me to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews 2, verse 14 through 18. And just look at how this package is again the idea of incarnation. Hebrews 2, starting at verse 14. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same. There's your incarnation. That through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil. Well, what's that all about? That's about Jesus disarming the accusations that the devil could lay to our charge in the courts of heaven and say, guilty, that man is guilty, you are guilty, I'm guilty. And the devil had a right cause in the courts of heaven. But when Jesus came, he disarmed the devil. He took away his power because Jesus could offer his blood as our atoning sacrifice. But it goes on. It says, And to deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. And then it goes on and says, For verily he took not on him the nature of angels. Which is striking. Because what was the devil? An angel. But he took on him. Notice what it says. The seed of Abraham. Covenant peculiarity. Covenant love. It doesn't say the seed of Adam. Seed of Abraham. Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren. That he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. To make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself hath suffered being tempted. He is able to succor them that are tempted. 
that old English word to succor. We don't talk about that too much anymore. Boiotheo in the Greek. Boiotheo. It means to run to the cry of help, to come to the rescue. Think of somebody who's trapped in a burning car and someone hears the cries and comes and suckers and gives help. And so Christmas speaks of a God who runs to our rescue. It speaks of Christ who is ever present and ever eager to help us through our darkest trials, our deepest valleys. It speaks of him who became a high priest for our aid, for our help. Think of New Year's resolutions. Perhaps you make them. Some people do, some people don't. New Year is coming soon, and perhaps you resolve not to give in to certain foods and activities anymore. Perhaps some of you resolve to clean up your language. Perhaps you resolve to be more considerate. Whatever resolves you might have, perhaps in the first few days you're like, well, doing pretty good here. Got this one down. But how are you doing by February, June, November? Think about this. The longer the temptation presents itself, the harder it gets, doesn't it? That's why the first few days you think you got it beat. But the longer, the harder. The deeper, the struggle. The greater, the force. Because the craving is greater. And our Lord Jesus Christ, as high priest, as the great interceder for his people, he endured on this earth temptation and trial to the uttermost, the Bible says, all the way to the end of his life, to three and thirty years. He never gave in once. Not once. It got harder. The temptations run deeper. But our Jesus stood the test. He is the best, the greatest high priest. Because in the depths of the hardest temptations, he's already been there. He's walked the road. He knows what it is to be tried to the deepest. And that's exactly what Hebrews 4 talks about. Turn the page, please, to Hebrews 4. Verse 14, seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. And here it explains exactly what I'm talking about. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, our struggles, our pains, but was in all points tempted like as we are. In all points, the depths of the temptations. He's walked the road before. In all points, yet without sin. And the engine this creates for prayer is this. Let us, therefore, come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. Oh, perhaps you were struggling with disappointments and discouragements this week. Maybe the things you have gone through in the past years just seemed too much to bear. 
But if you know somebody in those struggles that has the deepest, deepest sympathy, who has the fullest understanding of struggle, and he understands the pain, wouldn't you want to ask that person for help? I, I've met with people who have gone through extremely difficult things, and they're like, yeah, I understand you're trying to help, but you don't know what I'm feeling. You don't know the hardship. Well, there is someone who knows it even better than you do. That's exactly the point. Christ experienced it even deeper. He knows what it is to be persecuted. He was forsaken. He was ridiculed. He knows hunger. He knows loss. He knows hurt. He knows agony. How the coming of our Lord speaks of a sympathetic high priest. Him who sympathizes with our weakness. Stoops to our pain. Immersed himself in our struggles. You see, Christ plunged himself at Christmas into the hottest temptations of this world. We know that because when his ministry began, it says he was led by the Spirit to where? As the second Israel, he was led into the wilderness. And there he was not given manna. No, he hungered for 40 days, tempted of the devil. And later in Gethsemane, our Jesus would face the darkest and the blackest clouds because he knew the judgment that was looming ahead that would be poured out on him. The thunder clouds would unleash their darkest, most villainous agony upon Jesus. And that is why it says in Luke twenty-two forty-four, and being in agony, what did he do? Do you remember what he did? He prayed, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat was as it were great drops of blood falling down to the ground do you see that this high priest this man of sorrows is a man of prayer have you accounted for the prayers of christ for you believer have you accounted for the fact that this high priest has established the throne in heaven, the throne of justice, as a throne of grace? And he pleads his merits. He pleads understanding your pains. Born in humility, the greatest priest ever is ours. So be encouraged and consider carefully to think that as we pray, we do it with feebleness, with doubt, with discouragements, with imperfections. Our high priest offers perfect prayers before the Father for us. Now the McChain quote. Robert Murray McShane again says this. If I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million of enemies. And then he says this. Yet the distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. Point five, incarnation and kingdom. 
Remember when Jesus walked this earth, what would he often say? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus, John speaks of a conquering king who would destroy the devil. 1 John 3, 8, The Son of God was manifested, Christmas, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Christmas is a time when we sing many times, Glory to the newborn king. In the most remarkable way, the mystery of the kingdom of God would be established when the king would come down from the palace, down into the most lowly place, and become a minister, a servant, one who helps, when the Lord of glory would become the man of sorrows. And the interesting thing is that the elite of the world, the rulers, both of men and of dark angels, had no clue what was happening. Because 1 Corinthians 2, 8 tells us that, which none of the princes of this world knew. For had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. They had no idea that that servant would, through his death, triumph over them. You remember what Jesus taught his disciples to pray when they said, teach us to pray? What are the first two petitions? Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. And Jesus came to do exactly those things, to hallow the name of the Father and to usher in the glorious kingdom of the Father. May our prayers echo a similar vein, a similar passion. You know, so often in our prayers, we think of small things. Do you pray for small things? Or do you pray for the kingdom, for the biggest, for the largest, for the vastest, for that which matters most? Oh, I, I pray that this Christmas season, it would change our prayer lives to start praying for the kingdom minded focus we are called to have to be driven to be god-centered in our prayers is it not his kingdom that brings harmony to heaven and earth is it not the kingdom of jesus christ that restores fallen man from the bondage of change to the liberty of sons and daughters is it not the kingdom of christ that will defeat every last enemy it will not be anything else but his kingdom that will do this. He must reign until he has made all his enemies his footstool. And then the son will hand over the kingdom to the father that God may be all in all. 1 Corinthians 15. Is it not the kingdom, the kingdom of Christ that will take us from the reality of us being paupers in rags to princes in riches? Is it not the kingdom of Christ, his alone, that will transform the decaying furniture of this planet with the glories of heaven? You see, seeking his kingdom, praying thy kingdom come, is seeking for that which matters most, that which is greatest. Let us not pray for small things. Let us pray for big things. Pursue large things in your prayer life, people, because that is what Jesus came to do. Glory to the new born king. 
Last point. This one just, I find so staggering. The incarnation and trinity. The mysteries of God bound up as we see the word made flesh and dwelling among us. The whole act of redemptive history that God preordained from the foundations of the world to be fulfilled at the end of all time. We call that eschatology. God's redemptive plan over all things first promised in the little glimpses of Genesis 3.15 and carried forward as God unrolls the scroll of history are all centered in the fullness of time. Galatians 4, 4, when God sent forth his son, time was pregnant and burst at the seams when Jesus came to fulfill all things. This is amazing. Because when the word was made flesh, we see the gift of God opening up himself to mankind to enter into the very heart of God himself think about it the father from all eternity Ephesians 1 determines the plan the son accomplishes the salvation the spirit applies that salvation it is a trinitarian act that we see at Christmas starting to really take on its form. And what does this mean? How is this significant? In the unfathomable heart of God, of the Godhead, the triune God, where there is from all time perfect community, perfect harmony, the infinite, all-glorious God, ever happy in himself, not needing anything. He cannot be added to. He cannot increase or decrease. That God comes down. That God. And how does that relate to prayer? Let's turn to John 15. John 17, sorry. John 17. Oh, how I'd love to just talk through this whole thing. You know what John 17 is known as? The high priestly prayer. That's amazing because he ever lives as the high priest to pray for us. So what you see in the heartbeat of this prayer is the type of praying Jesus does for his people. But let's go to the very end. Verse 20. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word, that they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee. There you see some, some implications of the Godhead and unity, that they also may be one in us. You see that? Being drawn into that harmony of the Godhead. And we must always remember, God will ever stay distinct. But somehow through Jesus Christ, we are drawn into that Godhead, into fellowship. That they may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. And the glory which thou gavest me, I have given them. That they may be one, even as we are one. The unity of the church is a reflection of the unity of the Godhead. I in them, thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, that the world may know that thou hast sent me 
and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. But now I want to get to the jugular. Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which thou hast given me, for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. You see that? The eternal love of the Father for the Son is experienced by believers as they behold Jesus Christ. And then he goes on, O righteous Father, the world hath not known thee. That's the problem, isn't it? If you come this morning and you don't know Jesus, you'll never know the Father. There is no hope outside of Jesus. But I have known thee, and these have known that thou hast sent me. I have declared unto them thy name, and will declare it, that the love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them, and I in them. Every time we pray, we enter into the very communion of the Trinity. Christmas, the word taking on flesh, God never changing, but assuming flesh, okay? We, by faith, are united by the Spirit to Christ, mystical union, and by that union, because of Jesus, we have fellowship with the Godhead. Two sides, one in Christ, one in Jesus. God is the fountainhead of all delights. He is the source of all love. He is the eternal spring of all joy. And so to look at Jesus by faith is to behold the Father. And then as the sun melts the ice, as water revives the parched desert, and the great fountain flows with infinite love, that faith that prayer that unites to him starts to overcome sin and to humble the saint and to unite us more and more to the people of God as we collectively look at Jesus and by looking at Jesus, behold and fellowship with God. And so when you wrestle with doubt and when you seem to struggle with unanswered prayer, and we see how small our prayers can be, how pitiful we are in our prayers. Instead of being discouraged and navel-gazing and welting into prayerlessness, which often happens, let our prayers instead join with the heart of Christ in this prayer. Father, I will that they may behold my glory. Pray, Lord Jesus, may I see you more, and by seeing you more, be changed and conformed more to your image.
Have you ever stood in front of a powerful waterfall? It's beautiful. You were moved by the force of the water crashing down. At the same time, you're humbled by the mighty sounds. But you also feel the soothing mist splashing on your face. And the whole experience evokes at the same time ideas of power and majesty at the waterfall, but also sensations of peace and calm. You had that before? The incarnation of Jesus Christ brings the glorious, infinite king, full of majesty, full of power, full of greatness that we cannot even begin to describe, but also perfect peace, shalom, and rest bound up in him. Who can describe what the knowledge of Jesus Christ means? And so, dear people, pray, pray, and may our prayers be filled with the deepest Longings for a greater delight to behold the Prince of Peace more. There's the tension. The Prince of Peace. Power and calmness. Bound in one. Knowing him is knowing life. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for Christ. O Lord, may our prayers rise up with the heartbeat, beholding your glory, fellowshipping with you by faith. O Lord, may our heart join with Paul's heart that I may know him. O Lord, may we plead more after you, hunger more after you. May we be that deer who seeks and pants after the water the water of life, the Lord Jesus. O oh Lord, may this Christmas season be a time in which we can look back and say, truly, our fellowship is with God and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.